Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Matthew chapter 14 presents us with an audaciously bold miracle. And it made me think of uh, the painter Matisse, uh, who toward the end of his life changed his artistic style entirely. Uh, You may know that Matisse was a painter as well as a sculptor. But after he got a terrible diagnosis of uh, cancer in his abdomen, he was no longer able to stand for long periods of time, couldn't paint, couldn't sculpt. And instead, uh, he had a table in front of him because he had to be seated all the time. And he would cut up little scraps of paper and put those scraps and patches of paper all together in a new series, a very bold series called Jazz, in which he would display contrasting colors. And he wanted people's eyes to dance around the canvas, essentially. And toward the end of his life, he, he was reflecting on this series called Jazz. And he said this. At 75 years, I have at long last gotten rid of all my subtlety. After all this time, I have finally uh, discovered the boldness and blatancy of a five-year-old. I think that's amazing. And, you know, sometimes Jesus is like that. Sometimes he's very, very bold, and sometimes he's extraordinarily subtle. It just depends on the episode, depends on what he wanted that day. Whenever people became very pushy, he became shy. So whenever they demanded a miracle from him, he left to go to some other village. Whenever King Herod, during his interrogation, wanted Jesus to perform a magic trick, he shied away from the opportunity. Whenever Satan tried to entice him to engage in a suicidal gesture, you know, jump off the Empire State Building or the rough equivalent, the the temple, right? So everybody could see you get caught by angels and... You could get some good press out of this. He rejected that offer. But yet, he became extraordinarily bold on other days. And this is one of those days where Jesus walks on the sea. And I think this story is meant to be bold. It's meant to grab our attention and to help us perceive who Jesus really is. So it's a splash of cold seawater in our faces so that we wake up, so that we are sobered. And we understand who this sacred man really is. So I want to speak tonight about the two water walkers. And then I want to talk about a big mistake that people make in interpreting this passage. So we'll start with water walker number one. This is verse 23. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, a little bit of context. Jesus just finished offering a miracle to about 25,000 hungry people, right? But I'm not So sure, in fact, I'm very doubtful that all of the people in that 25,000 understood that they were receiving a miracle meal. The disciples knew it, but outside of that, it seems like they were just passing baskets and everybody ate their fill. 
but nevertheless, it was a grand miracle, but the disciples were the ones who really saw the inner workings of that miracle. And now they're going to experience yet again another bold miracle only meant for their eyes where Jesus walks on the sea, but not just the sea, the dangerous, chaotic sea of Galilee. Now, you may know that there's a rich cosmological as well as theological meaning regarding the word sea in the Old Testament, but also in, in Near Eastern religion. And it goes back to nearly the beginning of the book of Genesis. And you may remember that Jesus was not the first water walker. There was one who preceded him in Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the text says that there was darkness over the face of the deep, or the sea, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, what I like about the Genesis uh, uh, creation epic is that it's polemical. It, it essentially is seeking to combat other competing Near Eastern creation myths. And most of those myths entail a great deal of violence. And the sea is often personified as a goddess of violence. And in this case, in the Babylonian texts, uh, the goddess of violence is known as Tiamat. Uh, and Tiamat is eventually chopped up into little pieces by a, a god named Marduk. And, uh, it, you know, it doesn't end well. But um, so there's a lot of violence in that epic. But Tiamat always represents the dark unknown sea, the, the potential for chaos to break out at any moment tumult, unpredictability, all of that. And so Tiamat was the, this goddess of chaos, um, and she was identified with the sea. Why am I telling you all of this? Because the word for deep or sea in the Genesis epic is Tehom, which is a derivative of Tiamat. Uh, and so this goddess is in some way subtly referenced in the Genesis account as the spirit of God, the breath of God hovers over the face of the water. What's interesting though, is the spirit of God hovers over the calm waters. The Genesis epic is not violent, is not crude, is not cruel. But here the calm waters of an unfallen creation have upon them the spirit of God fluttering over them. And what's fascinating to me about what Jesus is doing here is he is mimicking the spirit from Genesis 1, as he walks upon the waters of creation. What's fascinating, though, is he goes a step further, a step further than the Holy Spirit does in simply hovering over the waters. First of all, he's walking upon chaotic, fallen, disruptive waters, so dangerous waters. So he's not hovering over a creation that's still tranquil, but a, but a creation that is evidencing its war against its creator. So Jesus is there walking and yet unsubmerged in that situation. And more than that, Jesus is not some disembodied spirit hovering or fluttering over a tranquil creation. Instead, this is a God who weighs roughly 180 pounds, you know, the carpenter God from Nazareth, who is strolling along on the water as if he were in the Galilean hillside. Here we have tranquility incarnate, unconsumed, unharmed by the devastating chaos of the world. A fascinating scene. So what is Jesus doing here? What is he doing here? He is disclosing something of his identity. He is saying that the sovereign of all creation, the one who is outside of time and space, yet who has invaded time and space, 
the one who is outside of creation, but now who could potentially be afflicted by creation, walks around unafflicted, unconsumed, and is still master over all that he sees. Every square inch is under the unique authority of this son of God. So he's displaying his power over this creation uh, gone wrong. He's unaffected by it. And this might be hinted at in what Jesus says to the disciples when he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Bad translation, bad translation. Um, The Greek doesn't say it is I. Uh, The Greek is ego ami, which means I am. So take heart, I am. Now, that may be, maybe, a reference back to Exodus chapter 3, where at the burning bush, God offers Moses God's own name, I am that I am. And that refrain is repeated in John's gospel, I am the bread of life, I am the vine, and so forth. He may be making that same sort of claim that they'll claim here in this passage, Do take heart, I am. So they see him walking on the water, they hear him calling himself something that sounds dangerously familiar, and they make the right conclusion. We can count on one hand the, how, how many times the disciples actually do this. They got it right. What did they do? They worshiped and they professed. They worshiped him, which is a very dangerous thing to do if he's just a human being, and they professed, you are the son of God. They understood what the walking on the water meant. This bold Matisse-esque action was understood and interpreted correctly. And it inspired another water walker. This is in verse 28, if you'd like to follow along. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, it would be great if we had a psychological textbook, like a DSM-5, to understand what was going on in the mind of Peter. Because lots of people make a lot of preacher hay out of this passage and preach whole sermons about what's not in the text. Here's what's not in the text. Was this a good thing for Peter to want or a bad thing for Peter to want? Lots of people make decisions about that. Is Peter a model for us, in other words, right? That unlike the other cowardly disciples, Peter had the courage to get out of the boat or to use 1980s preacher speak to get out of his comfort zone and do something daring for God. Was that what was going on? Or was instead um, Peter a bit reckless? Uh, And this is a cautionary tale of what not to do and who not to be. In other words, Peter, stay in your lane. If you're not God incarnate, don't walk on a lake. Well, the text is ambiguous regarding these things. And where the text is ambiguous, I think we ought to be as well. But what does the text unambiguously show us in this episode? What do we see in the experience of the second water walker uh, that we can deduce a lesson for us? The first thing I think Uh, and this is repeated throughout scripture, is that chaos and Christ coexist. Chaos and Christ coexist. The the chaotic sea is still chaotic when Christ is sovereignly walking upon it. And it is still chaotic when he invites Peter to join him on the water. The chaos doesn't subside until Jesus is later in the boat. And we we know from Christian theology that um, Christ, that is the sovereign, solid, immovable center, and the chaotic context of the world go together. 
They fit together until the kingdom comes in its fullness and chaos is permanently destroyed. This is why in the book of Revelation, at the very end, when heaven and earth are renewed, the text has this throwaway comment in the book of Revelation, and there was no sea. Right? No sea. Because chaos is destroyed. But until the sea is destroyed, so to speak, we will experience Christ and chaos together. Um, Paul understood this well. You know, he offers these words in 1 Corinthians where he asks, or 2 Corinthians, I forget the Corinthians. I should know this, but it, it hit me in the moment. Um, in which he prays that a thorn from his flesh, whatever that means, it's a metaphor for something, would be removed. He prays to God several times and God keeps saying, no, I won't take it away. Essentially saying Christ and the thorn will coexist in your life. Uh, the same thing is happening here. Chaos and Christ coexist. Also, chaos is intoxicatingly distracting. The leader and representative of the apostolic band was nearly distracted to death. It's very easy to become uh, distracted when danger is all around you or when you believe danger is all around you. So when you scour the, the globe or our community or our country right now and you're afraid of a virus or you're scared of people that you love becoming sick, or you're tired of being alienated from the people that you used to see every day, or your patterns have been thrown off, and that causes a lot of anxiety, or when you look at our political scene and you're scared, which you should be, um, and that was sort of a joke, but kind of not, um, and, uh, and you're afraid or terrified, and, and, and you're thinking, now if you're like me, you want to control the chaos, and how do you control the chaos? You try not to focus on the Christ, but you try to look at the chaos all around the Christ and say, how do we limit the damage? What can I do in order to call a halt to the dangerous elements within the context? Instead of focusing on the Christ, it's very easy to get distracted, even with practical solutions. By the way, lots of people believe this in, in um, election cycles, that they're going to create the utopia. All they have to do is vote for a candidate, and if they get their candidate elected, the utopia will come. That's insane, just for what it's worth, but lots of people are duped into that. It's a way of dodging the, the true core and immovable man in the, in the middle of all things. Um, but chaos is intoxicatingly distracting. Peter had in front of him the miracle man of Nazareth who was doing a miracle that no human being had ever done in the history of the world. And instead what Peter does is stare at the water and the wind, things that he saw every day of his life. He was a fisherman. He knew what chaotic weather was like. But it's, this is what he does. He's so consumed with fear that he loses his center. He's distracted. And lastly, I think we learned that chaos does not consume. Chaos does not win. This is the gospel word in this passage, that Jesus is the lifeguard for those who have pathetic faith, who have cheap faith, who have garage sale faith, who have faith that doesn't amount to much, who has faith that's barely perceptible, say the size of a mustard seed, um, that that would be enough. I think those are some things we learn regarding the second water walker. And now here's a great error in, in interpretation in this passage. I think we can very naturally suffer from Peter's malady. That is to read this particular Bible passage and become distracted. To become distracted away from the first water walker and instead draw our attention only to the second water walker, Peter. So many sermons out there go something like this. How can we be brave like Peter and get out of our boats, get out of our comfort zones, and do something amazing for the Lord. I'm like, get out of our comfort zones. I like my comfort zone. There are couches in there. 
Or how can we avoid the mistakes of Peter? What are the winds in our particular oceans that distract us as Peter was distracted? And how can we not be like him in the future? Or how can we make our allotment of little faith even bigger? And if we did get it developed, what could we accomplish then? We, couldn't we wouldn't just sprint across you know, the Galilean Sea. We could do an ultra marathon across the Pacific Ocean if we had enough faith. But I think these are the wrong questions. Our focus ought not be on the moron that sank into the sea, but on the Christ who didn't sink. That's the whole point of this passage, not to focus on Peter's so-called success or failure, but on the unconsumed Christ who has authority, ultimate authority, over the chaos. This is why we're gathering tonight. It's why we sing. It's why we worship. It's why we pray. It's why we make conscious contact with God to readjust our focus, not on Peter, uh, not on the chaos of our surroundings, which is always going to be there, but on the one man who has the control. Uh, so when I uh, marry people, very often in my wedding homily, I say something like this. The bride and the groom are about to do something crazy. They are about to make a solemn covenant together within an ever-changing context. And if you notice the marital vows, that's what they say. The context will always change because you're marrying this person for better, you know it, or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, until death parts us. So the only thing that you're being guaranteed in context is that your life might get better or get worse on any given day, but then you'll die. In light of those boundaries, if they are boundaries, you are committing yourself to a solid and permanent relationship. That's the one thing that doesn't change, but the context most certainly will. And the same is true of Christ. We focus not on the man who slipped into the water and nearly died, but on the man who didn't, on the man who was solid, who was unconsumed. Um, so we keep our eyes fixed on a Christ who did not permit himself to be consumed by chaos. Now, later in his life, of course, he did, in fact, permit himself to drown, not in a chaotic creation or a swell of water, but instead drown in human transgressions, sin, and blood. But he could not stay down forever because, as he said, I have the power to lay my life down, but I have the power to take it up again. And this same one who gave his life in such a way has the power to empower and cause us to do things and become things that we never thought we could do or be. And so as we look back on our own haggard journeys, which is certainly what they are, we will see how we did, in fact, more often than we uh, assumed at the time, strolled upon roaring seas, threatened by chaos and death at every turn, and yet we remained unconsumed by it, always beckoned toward the Son of God who loved us boldly, even unto death and beyond. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not